Now stay with me while we do this visualization from Lesson 18. Swami begins by visualizing rising bubbles of joy, just emanating from yourself and from the work that you're doing. Feel that all that the energy you put out manifests these rising bubbles of joy. And then see these bubbles of joy expanding outward into infinity. Each one is a point of light. And those points expand outward in all directions until infinite space is filled with that light. Realize that whenever we put out positive, uplifting energy, we are creating precisely that image. We're creating positive force fields, light and joy, and it rises up from our consciousness and literally expands out to infinity and joins with all of the other bubbles of light and joy emanating from divinely inspired people everywhere. Now think for a moment about the work you do, whatever it might be. Office work, business work, banking, real estate, selling, teaching, landscape, whatever you might do, whatever work it is. And feel that whatever work you're doing is the origin point of a bubble of light emanating from you and that your very act of working is putting forth a bubble of light. Whatever else you may be doing, what you're really doing is emanating these bubbles of light. And see from your workplace, your mental picture of the desk where you sit, the telephone that you use, the computer, the tools the space you walk, whatever it might be. See yourself in that space and see every action that you take as being also creating these bubbles of light and joy created by your attitude of divine service, your attunement to the infinite possibilities and your own inherent sense of ever new joy. Feel that in whatever work you do, both through the work itself and by the opportunity it gives you to put out energy that is filled with light and joy, that you are really helping and serving others. Just reframe for a moment whatever you do as a service to others. Somewhere, somehow in what you're doing, others are being affected You are providing them something that is necessary, whatever it might be. Consciously feel your work as simply that, serving others. And see how that thought form brightens the light and expands the bubble. Now see yourself also is one thread in a tapestry that goes all over the globe of individuals of awareness 
who recognize that work is service and service is joy. And the energy that you are putting out in the bubbles of light and joy that you are creating as they rise outward to infinity meet all those other bubbles of light and joy being emanated by souls just like us who are also sincerely doing their work as service to others and as service to God and see how that tapestry weaves around the world and how that light and joy serves as a protection and as an inspiration and as an upliftment for all who are touched by it. Resolve within yourself to be that instrument of light in everything that you do and know that in that emanation of light you are serving creatures everywhere, beings everywhere, conscious beings everywhere, all of whom crave that experience of light. Home, peace. Amen. Today we are working with Lesson 18, Secrets of Effective Advertising. When I uh, saw what this one was about, I wasn't really sure exactly how I was going to work with this. As Swami himself says, we're not really here to write about advertising. Although I uh, must admit that the book, Confessions of a Madison Avenue Advertising Man, written by... His name escapes me at the moment. It's a very old book. It was really one of the most entertaining books I've read, and I really highly recommend it to anybody who has to do any kind of communication and public work. And he was very, very, uh, one of my uh, really most enjoyable business books. Not that I've read very many, but I wish I could remember the name of the man. It escapes my mind. He was a charming English man, and he said, uh, when he was about 18 years old, his mother, who was very wealthy and rather eccentric, drew him into her office or room and said to him, you're going to make so much money on your own, I'm really not going to leave you any of mine. (laughs) And that was precisely what happened. (laughs) Anyway, when his name comes to me, I'll tell you. Um, But what happened in this, I mean, not only does Swami really talk about advertising and things like that, but there were some other just to my mind, you know, more interesting. I myself have had to work a lot writing advertising. In fact, I learned to write by having to write advertising. I mean, not working for an advertising company per se, but when we took over the center in 1987, 88, I mean, the whole thing was about communication. We had to just start telling people what we were doing. We were just in exactly the same situation Swami describes. Here we are. We have a really good product to offer, which is Master's Teachings, But if nobody knows about it, it's not going to do anybody any good. So I had to start writing about it. And, of course, printing costs money and everything. You can't send out volumes and volumes about everything. So I started having to say everything in 25 words or less or 50 words or less. And I must say, that was when I discovered how many extra words there were in everything that I wrote. When you only have 25 of them and you take out everything that's not contributing you realize that a lot of words are just hanging around there and not doing anything except taking up space and slowing down the reader. 
So after about 10 years or of years of that, or 15 years of that, I suddenly was an infinitely better writer than I had been when I started. In fact, some of the most creative and best writing often comes out of advertising. As a, a person who, as a wordsmith and a writer myself, I always really appreciate it. Uh, and then whenever I see a really terrific ad, no matter what the product, I'm just so impressed that somebody could actually think about that. You know, that, and, and I also really enjoy what must have been the aha moment when the person realized they absolutely nailed it. You know, they just got, they said exactly what they wanted to say. They said it in all the ways Swami said. Honestly, magnetically, sometimes with a little bit of fun in it, um, you know, with, uh, but clearly, so you really get the picture and you really feel that. It's a, uh, because there's a lot of incentive for people to be able to do this well, it's really, advertising is really very interesting to see how people say what they have to say, how quickly they can communicate it, how few words it actually takes. It's an extremely good lesson in right communication. Um, and not you know, whether or not the ads sell and whether you like the product, you can still respect um, what's being done. In this book by this man whose name I believe, his first name is David and last name I can't remember, um, he, at one point, his agency was competing for the account for Greyhound buses. And he was one of three agencies presenting, and he was, they were allowed to sit in and watch the other presentations. And the company before him presented the slogan, which Greyhound has used for, I don't know if they still use it, it was called, Leave the Driving to Us. And he said, when he saw that, he said to the Greyhound people, he said, I'm not going to even make a presentation. You should take that. That's the best. That's, nobody can top that. And then he just walked out of the room and didn't even bother to compete. He was a very honest man. Um, and the other thing I always remembered from him, this is just, I'm just chatting here, but he said, um, so often people who, uh, who do advertising change perfectly good ads because they are bored with them. And he said, just the most important thing to remember, if it's not broken, don't change it. Just, but Swami writes about that. Was it Marlboro country? Swami's images are, the last time he ever looked at advertising was probably about 1940. <laughs> but he was talking about the cigarette company and he said they keep repeating the same theme, but they make it creative with the images. And he said, you have to keep making it creative because my other advertising teacher, which was Michael Toms, really said, you know, after a while, things do lose magnetism. And you have to just do something to refresh it. But that doesn't mean you have, if you have a perfect concept, you have to recreate it. Um, but it's, it, I, ever since I've had to, I had to write so much for so little space, I've had a really um, keen nose for um, fluff. Prior to that, Swamiji told me that, he said about my writing when it was really awful, he said, you never really quite know what you want to say, so just to be sure you say it two or three times. <laughs> um, but there's a few points in here that, um, well, let me just come to whatever it is. But one of the things that I, I really appreciated, and for those of you who actually are in business and do have to think about marketing what you say, I'll just speak a little of our own experience here. I've always felt whenever we communicate about Ananda, that what we are doing is unlike what anybody else on the planet is doing. And I don't mean to say that in any, like, oh, we're the best or anything like that, but I've traveled a great deal by this point in my life, and I've met a lot of people, and it's just a fact. This is 
Paramahansa Yogananda's teaching. He was a unique avatar for this age. Swami Kriyananda is his um, heir, spiritual heir. And they're just doing something that no one else is doing. Oh, we're doing something no one else has done. So I always feel that when we're describing anything we're doing, even if we're just, you know, writing to a friend or having verbal communication, we should try our best to say something that couldn't be said about anything else in certain ways, especially when we advertise, when we're really trying to describe Ananda in a written way. We often fall back, either within ourselves or in our writing, to what really amount to cliches. When I had... um, influence over it, I forbade anyone to use the word joy when talking about Ananda. (laughs) Not because we couldn't say it, but because it's just a fallback. Oh, it was such a joyful event. It was such an inspiring event. Of course it was joyful. Of course it was inspiring. But what does a person know after that? They don't have any context for it. I mean, I'm I'm half joking, but only half joking. You know, if if we really want to communicate, we need to really go into something and really try to understand what is the essence of this? You know, what really makes this, uh, everything in the world is unique. You know, what really makes this unusual and why does it matter to you? Swamiji says, think about what the most important aspect of it is to you and then what the most important uh, benefit would be to the person you're talking to. I mean, these are basic advertising rules. But the, the thought involved in that is to really find the place where you're, you're standing in the unique reality of it. Yes, sometimes... Something is just like something else. You know, a dress is a dress. It has sleeves, it has a hem, has a belt. You can't really pretend that it doesn't. Merely using words like cummerbund and, you know, arm appendages doesn't really change the fact that you're only talking about sleeves. But there are unique qualities, you know, the, uh, th- that everything has. I know once with Ananda, we used this for a while, and I'm not sure it was terribly successful, but for a while I said that Ananda was um, a place where the um, presence, the ancient, the, the blessings of the ancient masters is made man, it comes into visible form through um, the, the technique of, of Kriya Yoga, um, through the blessings of those masters, and through the satsang of fellow truth seekers. And it was like, well, that really is exactly who we are. It's a place on earth where the heaven and earth meet, really. And this force comes through, and this is the form that it takes. We meditate. We relate to one another, and we feel the presence of those gurus. It's very simple. But that, that in, in the end, it was determined, and probably truly, that that wasn't what people were looking for. It was an accurate definition of what we're doing, but it didn't take into account what other people were looking for. But what Swami also says here is that when you begin to describe what you're doing and really try to explain it to others, it also acts as an inspiration for you. Because oftentimes we get a little sort of stale in what we're doing. Or, we, or we're, not, we're no longer aspiring to do it so well. But then when you have to write down, you know, that our widgets are really the most effective widgets that you can buy. You know, we are, our quality control is perfect and our widgets will never break down even under great stress. And then you have put out that as a fact and you have to go back to your widget factory and make sure that in fact everybody is widgeting them just exactly the way they're supposed to be done but he, he, he really it's very interesting I love uh, this is, these are the parts that I began to find interesting when you assert this reality then you also set, set an energy in motion that will actually lift you up behind it 
Whereas if you don't raise the bar and make your declaration with enough clear energy, then you yourself might become less and less inclined to, to fulfill that. Now, those are all aspects, and we can come back to that in a little bit. The other thing he talks about, which is really interesting, he talks about both the importance of fun and the importance of feeling. And I think if you were going to talk about sort of how Swamiji is trying to get us to regard business in another light, those two realities are part of it. You know, so much of, of what people do in life sort of uh, assumes a kind of grim necessity. And what we're doing, we just, we go and we do it, but there's just no um, upliftment at all engaged in it. And of course, that's deadly for our spirit. In fact, once when I, it was I who asked Swamiji once, could you just, this was many years ago, can you tell us what you think of as a non-dismission? And his answer to me, to the whole room, was to have fun. He said, just like that, to have fun. And everybody started laughing because, you know, we were pretty puffed up with our importance as the first community based on Yogananda's teachings and all of those things. And, you know, it's our mission just to have fun. And then after he, the laughter died down, he, he expanded in a happy way, but a little more seriously. He said, but you have to understand uh, what our definition of fun is. And he said, our definition of fun is to feel God's presence and then to share that presence with others. But really, that is what it's about. But it's extremely important in life, in business, and on the spiritual path to have fun. And you hear that word a lot in the context of Ananda. I, I, uh, I remember sort of watching and learning these things as I became involved in the community and as we started this one here years later. How we have, to a very large extent in our society as adults, lost the capacity to have fun. Um, we become very passive in our entertainments. We watch other people do things, either almost always through a f- some film media. We watch movies, we watch sports. And the, the sort of concept of good, clean fun just isn't there like it used to be. Before people had television to sort of make everybody stare in one direction, People played games, people sang songs, people made music, people socialized on the porch. I recall reading how, how first the presence, the, the uh, arrival of air conditioning, and then the arrival of television completely changed society. Before air conditioning, people sat outside in the evening because it was too hot in the house. So you sat outside in the evening and then people interacted with each other. And then, of course, with the presence of television, whether it was, whatever was happening, everybody went inside. And as soon as people went inside, they stopped relating to each other. And as soon as television started, even within the house, people stopped relating to each other. Well, I lived for a tremendous number of years, 16 years, up at Ananda Village. I mean, now there is some um, capacity to receive television. For some of those years, we didn't have electricity, so it was really moot. And then for almost all the years I was there, you couldn't receive television. It just couldn't come in where we were. And nobody wanted it. We really didn't want it for the kids. And videos hadn't quite gotten the energy that they presently have. So it just didn't exist. All our entertainment had to be self-generated. And of course, whenever we had any kind of gathering, social event, you know, there was always a, a plan. There was always a social director and there was something that was going to happen. There was always some good, clean fun planned. I recall how surprised I was. At a certain point, I had a job where 
we, Ananda was trying to make a, this political event happen. We were trying to change the legal designation of the land that we owned, and it was a huge political process. And so in the course of that, I got involved with a lot of people in the local area. This was like the end, about 79 and 80, 81. And I got involved with a lot of local people, and there was this one very nice man who was the head of the county agency that I was having to work with all the time. And he was a local engineer, and he, I think he was a native of the county, you know, prominent man in a small town. And so he had an annual Christmas party. It was a big event, and so he included me and uh, my uh, co-worker in this project. So we went to the party. And we went with this like total Ananda expectation about life. And when we got there, it's sort of like we kind of looked around. There was a piano, but it was sort of like tucked back in the corner, like turned against the wall, so it was clearly not planning to be used. And there was nothing in the room, and there was, there was nothing that was going to happen. And we gradually realized that people were just going to drink. And that they would just all get slightly inebriated, and then they would think they were having fun. And it was, and this was a very nice man. It was just like, Mamma Mia. So we stayed, you know, uh, not very long. We really left before the festivities started, you know. It was just beyond us to imagine. But it actually sort of hurt my heart. Didn't sort of, it really hurt my heart because this was a very nice man. You know, just sort of the fun is taken out of things. We do. We think it's more fun if we're intoxicated. One of my friends who worked with a lot of teenagers you know, he, he, when, how much, how much uh, drinking, how much marijuana, how much is too much. He said, well, he said, when you have a really nice experience and then you say afterwards, gee, that would have been even more fun if we'd been stoned. <laughs> he said, you're doing too much. <laughs> if you can no longer relate to the world directly, but always think you have to have something to drink before you can relate to it. So Swami just talks in a very simple way here. When you're writing advertising, have fun. I always I lament, even still, I never find the Ananda... Ananda people are very funny. Ananda is very humorous, but our advertising isn't. There's like almost no jokes in any of our advertising ever. And I, I, it bothers me. I made up a whole humorous sort of series of ads once, but we never really got them off the ground. You know, like, Kundalini stuck in low, we can help. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a whole weekend just sort of you know, running these things out of my mind. <laughs> but it, we never actually found a way to use them, and I'm not sure everyone thought they were as funny as I did. I thought they were really funny. <laughs> um, let's see. So, but, but what he's also saying is that, in a very real sense, you know, divine joy manifests as fun. That's where suffer little children to come unto me, for as such is the kingdom of God. Because it's just a, there's that playfulness. This is not a child, this was a puppy, but I was, or just a small dog. I was, I was driving out tonight down Monroe Avenue from our community, and I saw a man walking a dog. And they were walking so slowly, I thought, this poor ch- dog's not going to get any exercise. But when I got close enough, he was just one of those little tiny ones, but he had this tiny little ball. And so the whole time he was walking, he was spinning the ball, you know? <laughs> And he was so excited, just spinning the ball. I presume they'll go all the way around the block and the dog will spin the ball the whole way. And I thought, you know, where is his consciousness? Swami Kriyananda remarked, and ever since he said this, I've always found it interesting. Swami was just describing his own elevated state of awareness, although he didn't say it that way. He was just 
describing his state of mind. And he was saying how just everyone and everything has begun to look the same to him. He said, people, and he doesn't mean that in any negative sense. He said, Every, everyone, even animals, he said, are just um, consciousness somewhere on the spectrum of ego. Is how he put it. And so you, you go down to the lowest consciousness of human beings and you just cross over to the animal level. They're, they're still the same. That little tiny puppy, in his very uh, uh, unsophisticated and not very self-aware way, still has an ego. He, he's an individual self and he has a, his own personality. Anybody who deals with animals know that they all have their personality. And I tried to think, what kind of an inner consciousness would you have to be able to just roll that little ball all around the whole block. Well, for one thing, you would have a very non-existent sense of time. Because if any of us started rolling that little ball around the block, the thought would cross our mind is, this is a big block and a very small ball, you know? Like, it's going to take me a really long time. And then we'd have a sense of personal fatigue, and then we'd have a thought of other priorities. All kinds of things would enter our mind. But this little dog, and many small children, I mean... How many times have you seen children just doing something? I was in a, a train station in Europe and this little child, I can't, aperto, chiuso, however you say open and close in Italian, but whatever it was, very small child, had discovered that you can make the doors open and close. And the child would jump out and scream in Italian, open, like this, and the doors would open and she would be so excited and then she'd run away and then, you know, uh, she didn't say close, she just said open, and then they would close, and then she would come again, open like this, you know. And I think she, well, she did it for a very long time. <laughs> I don't know if she ever got tired of it, because each time she did it, you know, it was new. It was like this ever new sense of fun. And um, Swamiji was using that phrase, suffer little children to come unto me, for if such are the kingdom of heaven. I've always tended to think of that as how we should be. You know, we should be more innocent, we should be more open-hearted. But Swamiji also, in this context, made the statement, because that's how God is. And he was, he was talking, this was in his commentary on the Gita, he was talking about how, it's hard for us to imagine that the creator of this infinite complexity, the force that creates this infinite complexity, can be simple as a child. It, the mind kind of tilts on that because we think it has to become complicated. And um, on, on another occasion, he was explaining it. I, some of you have heard me talk about this, because I was there when, and I came home from a trip, and I was talking about this. But he was saying, you see, that everything in creation is vibration, is energy, sound, light, in motion, like this. And of course, that's the duality. And the stronger the motion, the more extreme the duality. Hatred, love, you know, war, peace, life, death, or, you know, just little fluctuations. But you see, the closer you come to the center of our own reality, or just even the center of yourself, the more centered you are in yourself, the less life throws you around. Isn't that so? Because the closer you come to the center, the more still and simple things are. So some great catastrophe comes at work and everybody's losing their center all around you. But if you're calmly centered, you say, okay, we'll deal with this. Some great success comes and instead of being like those people on television who are chosen because they're willing to scream and go berserk over anything, you say, well, that's wonderful. But the oscillation is not so extreme because 
One is living more centered in oneself. Well, all of this duality gradually comes to a point of stillness. That's what the whole art of meditation is, isn't it? We take this very restless mind, very active bodies, we set them, we try to pull all that movement into stillness. Because when we are in that stillness, we can do Kriya, and we can raise our energy up, and we can perceive the light. But all of that comes when we're still. And what, 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 what interrupts that meditation? Thoughts, movement, body hurting, wanting to do something like that. So it's all based on stillness. We get, the more still we get, the closer and closer we get to God. Now, if all the complexity is created by movement, and the presence of God is in stillness, then the closer you get to that stillness, the more and more simple everything becomes. And so God is as simple as a child. When Swamiji first expressed this, we were visiting in India, and he, he sort of said it in the context of a satsang the night before, then the next morning he said, uh, I don't think everybody understood how important what I said was. You know, how, how really profound and true that is. And just coming back to this oneness. And of course, suffer little children. And what are the characteristics of children? Well, children find pleasure and joy in just about everything, don't they? I mean, they just, they, they have this astonishing capacity to just have fun. I, I swim at the YMCA and they have some program there where... Um, parents or grandparents, some adult will bring very small children to swim. And they, they sort of have a little class for these tiny children. And, you know, some of the children are nervous, but some of the children are just so excited about being in a pool. I mean, these are really little tiny children. And they, they play all sorts of games. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, one, two, three, jump, the bus, the wheels on the bus go up and down, you know, just all this stuff. And But the, some of the kids are just fearless. And they stand on the side of the pool and mommy or daddy or somebody's standing out there. Kid just throws himself into the water just with so much enthusiasm. And, you know, one longs for that kind of freedom. I mean, one of the reasons that I, after I swim, will just stand there for a long time and just watch them is it's so... um, Oh, you just... It's so uplifting to see someone who just remembers and hasn't gotten all confused by all the movement. So, so the, the spirit of, of the divine is always fun-filled. And it doesn't mean that it's always laughing and raucous. But there's this inner sense of, oh, this will be fun. I mean, isn't that what that phrase means? Oh, this is fun. Isn't this fun? That just means that we're, having, we're enjoying ourselves. And we're enjoying ourselves in that particular lighthearted way. So in terms of business which is the more we approach every aspect of our business, and this is now communicating our business to others, the more we make it clear to people that we're enjoying ourselves doing this. This is not an arduous or a heavy thing for us. I mean, think about it. Where will you go? To someone who's having a miserable time or somebody who's having a lot of fun? Where are you drawn? I mean, any place where they're having fun is where you always go. I mean, Apple Computer is really one of the most astonishing the Apple company, just it's an astonishing example of this sort of endless creativity and this refinement of what they're doing and the fun that they have, even 
in their little stores, when you go in for help, they have the genius bar. I mean, isn't that a marvelous idea? Where the computer geniuses sit behind there and you bring your problem to them and they help you. And many a time I've carried my computer into one of the resident geniuses and asked him to help me. I mean, it's just such a lighthearted way to ask. You know, to, they could say, oh, your, our experts will help you. No, no, they have a, a genius bar. And you go sit at the bar and the geniuses are on the other side and they serve you. Pardon me? And, and they are geniuses, yeah, that too. Eccentric geniuses. I was there once talking about having fun. I was there once and, you know, they probably, well, they were just enjoying themselves. But one man started, like, mocking some of the more outrageous customers that they'd ever had. And he starts playing this whole thing out. He, he's pretending to be the comforter. I was at Taco Bell and I got cheese inside my computer. <laughs> Can you help me? There's cheese in my computer. <laughs> one of the a techie guys once told me once that there's a phrase called, uh, let's see, Pebcac, I think it's called. And they actually write it, you know, if sometimes there's a, there's a technical problem, they have to make a report like the people tech support. Pebcac, problem between chair and computer. <laughs> Meaning human error, but they have fun. So they just make it more fun like that. But you know, see, as soon as you're having fun, you don't have to try to be creative. You don't have to try to be magnetic. It just all comes out of you automatically. Isn't that so? So he, he really is trying to put that in. If you're going to talk and you're going to do things, let's just do them with a little bit of touch. And I mean, I love his donut ads. I wish I was in business to do donuts. My favorite is where one donut says to a loaf of bread, but I am holier than thou. <laughs> it's just a marvelous ad for a donut. <laughs> And you see that, you want to go buy it. I buy Apple computers for a lot of reasons. I didn't even first realize they were so much more expensive. I was so naive. But I buy them just because I just have such respect for their creativity. I really want to support that creativity and that fun-filled creativity also. One of my uh, friends who is a swami in India, the cursor on his computer is this little meditating yogi. It's not like a little bar. It's this little meditating yogi that moves all over the place. And he's a very serious swami, but he's a little meditating yogi. It just sort of gives you an idea of people's minds. But let's not ever, you know, uh, underestimate the importance of childlike joy. When uh, I was just remembering when a friend of mine and I, this was many years ago. This was actually, well, it must have been 1978. It was actually, we were in Denver, Colorado. It was where I met David for the first time. And uh, we were the, the um, what do you call it, the front people. Swami Kriyananda was on a nationwide tour and we were going to a couple of cities, or maybe just one city, Denver, to help set things up before he got there. And there was some gathering, I think uh, there was some musician in town. Well, all the people that we wanted to meet were at this reception and we were invited to be there and so we went. And, uh, but it, we got there, and we were much less experienced in, with the world and with people. We were really country yogis, and we found ourselves in that situation. And when we pulled up, and, uh, pulled up there, um, it was this big, wealthy mansion, and you know, it was just a much more posh scene than we were used to. And we were just dressed in our simple country yogi clothes. And so we were a little intimidated standing there just about to ring the doorbell, you know, like, what are we getting ourselves into? And my friend turned to me and she said, 
Childlike joy is always in fashion. <laughs> and then she rang the doorbell when we went in. And in fact, we sort of went in with that spirit, immediately met a couple of people who have been friends for the rest of our lives. I didn't meet David in that room, but we met the woman who's now known, uh, Nisha Ladevi. She was Swami Nisha Ananda at that point. But and we just walked right in, we were drawn to her. It was a wonderful night. But every time I feel a little intimidated by something, I always think, childlike joy is always in fashion. And you just go out there. What he's also saying is don't let anything intimidate you. You know, just be yourself, have fun, be joyful, be a light bubble, and everything else will take care of itself. I mean, that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Just get your own magnetism in order. Don't, don't let other people's or, or, or the other people's positions or things or other people's over-serious self-importance really depress your spirits. Just lift yourself up. This is completely unrelated, but I'm reminiscing. On that trip, my friend Arati um, and I traveled together. We drove out from California to Colorado, and we are both extremely strong personalities. And both of us are pretty much convinced that we're right all the time. And we're dear sister friends. And, and so we were traveling together and had to be together you know, all the time. We had to make a lot of decisions about what we did. And we just, neither of us negotiated very well. So we came up with a perfect solution, which was called dictator for the day. <laughs> and we simply alternated. And on her days, she made all decisions. And I just really had nothing to say about them because she was the dictator. And on my day, I was the dictator. And I could make any, and that also gave me the right to ask her what she thought. But I didn't have any obligation to listen. <laughs> And we had a perfectly wonderful trip <laughs> as soon as we hit that. So I highly recommend that <laughs> if you find yourself in circumstances like we were. We both enjoyed that trip so much. Um, the other point, having first talking about that, but Swamiji says the most interesting thing about the material world and about material desires in this lesson. And this is really the most interesting part of this because... There's always this thought, you know, you're in business, you're trying to get people to buy things. And then on the other side of it, you think, why should anybody buy anything? You know, I'm just sort of working against my own values here by trying to get people to buy anything. And we run East West Bookshop, which is filled with beautiful things to buy. It's got a lot more in there than just books. And this is a problem, honestly, I've had this my whole life. In terms of Swamiji, until I read it in here, it's such a subtle point. Um... Swami Kriyananda has always made things nice. I mean, within the limits of his budget. In the first early years of Ananda, in 1971, he built his whole entire house and furnished it for $5,000, so you can kind of guess what it was like, even in 1971. You know, it was mats on the floor, and everything just made as cheaply as possible. But he, 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 was, he was always trying to make it nicer. And I would, he would take me with him a lot, I mean, me and others, you know, he would shop for furniture, he would shop for dishes, he would shop for this and that, and I'd go with him, and I'd help him, and I was always in favor of his buying things, but I could never understand why. Just like a deep part of me could just never understand why, and I could never understand him as a yogi buying all these things. Um, Two realities entered after a time. In 1978, when he was in India, in Kashmir, he was in a long seclusion, and that was before Kashmir blew up. In fact, it was really wise that he did what he did, and he 
met a really first-class craftsman there, and he bought um, a lot of hand-carved walnut furniture from Kashmir and just put it in a shipping container and shipped it back. And even shipping it all the way from India back to America, it was just, you know, pennies on the dollar for what you would what you would be able to buy here. If any of you go to Ananda Village and go to Crystal Hermitage, which is where Swami's apartment is, there's a huge dining room set and a buffet and two tables and all these carved chairs. And in the living room, there's furniture, all beautifully hand-carved. And a great deal of that he bought in 1978. In 1978, we didn't have a building to put this furniture in. And I was on the other side, the other side meaning America, and I was his secretary at that point, and I was, you know, finding money, borrowing money, getting donations, shipping, making wire transfers to give him what was really just a few thousand dollars, but seemed like a huge amount of money to buy all this beautiful furniture. And a whole big part of me kept thinking, you know, why? If he wants to, it's okay with me, but why? Well, he first persuaded me by saying that Whatever we do with Ananda, he said, we, we don't want to be luxurious and we don't want to be extravagant. But in America, if you don't bring things up to a certain level of refinement, people will think that you, don't, you yourself don't have the refinement. As, as he put it, he said, you have to bring, you, people have to feel that the, the, the environment has to be as refined as the ideas that you're trying to represent. And so he, he was saying, we, do, we need to make the whole place so that people will feel the sense of aesthetics and the sensitivity that created it because then that will communicate to them that there's a consciousness behind it of similar nature. In America, that's especially important. And uh, he also, um, around that same time, the car he used to drive, part, part of that, part of you know, our poverty was just because we were poor, we were buying a lot of land. We were trying to make a community. And we've, we, meaning the greater Ananda, worldwide has never had a patron. We've never had anybody who was really wealthy who made it happen. We've had generous donors, you know, but, you know, a $50,000 donation for us is huge. And in a world, a work as big as ours, um, you can, and as much has been accomplished you can see that it's been a lot of small people just working really hard. We've never had anybody write checks. I keep thinking before Swami dies, I hope some really wealthy person just hands him an open checkbook. It would be so, such a relief for him to just be able to do his creativity without having to piece everything together. But anyway, at that time, he had a car, and it was this old big blue Chevrolet, and it had been bought at a... Um, an auction, a government auction. It was a surplus vehicle. In fact, two of them were bought for $75 each, one to cannibalize parts for the other. And it had been painted over, but you could still faintly see um, that it had been an Air Force car. So we called that Chevrolet Air Force One. <laughs> That's what we called it. <laughs> and it was just one of those big old American cars, and he had that car for years. It was very comfortable, and six of us could... Uh, travel in it, five or six of us, which was always really great because we liked to go with him and had a big trunk. And we went down to San Francisco for some big event, and it was held in uh, Francis Wood, a very posh part of San Francisco. And we're pulling up, and all the cars are Mercedes and Cadillacs and even... And it was a reception 
for all the spiritual teachers who were part of some big program that was happening the next day. So this was like, that was at the time when those things happened a lot in San Francisco. And so pretty much every significant spiritual teacher in the country had gathered there. And we're pulling up to this house, and we were a little late, and all the rest of them were there, and all of their cars were gorgeous. And we pull up in this Air Force One, you know. And Swami, we park the car, and then Swami looks around, and he said, I have to get a new car. And he said, not that I care myself, he said, but I represent this work, and if people look at the car I drive in America, where he says money is so easy to get, compared to India, for example, he said, oh, he said, in India they would respect me for driving this car. He said, in America they will think there must be something wrong with what he's doing if he can't afford a better car than that. So he went out and he bought a Ford. <laughs> so shortly after, someone donated some money to him and he bought a, a, you know, a new Ford, just a middle-range car. had a nice look to it. But he said, just, it's just necessary because this is what we're doing. So that's one aspect to it. But the other aspect is even more fascinating which is Swamiji talks about how we are, the soul is driven to seek lasting fulfillment. And that is the operative power that causes us to have the courage to face into our karma, to generate the energy, to do what's needful, and to overcome. And if we didn't have that inner drive for fulfillment, um, we would live and behave very differently. Now, I'm having the realization that if we're going to have a break, it has to be now. Um, What we were discussing is how the soul's insatiable longing for fulfillment is the motivating force, really, for all of life. Um, Let's see. Passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness to emerge at last into perfect joy. That's the uh, in the festival of light, we go through that question: Why was what is real? Why was God created? Why did God make the world? What is the purpose of life? And then we talk about all the elements of creation. Everything about creation is for a purpose, and that purpose is ever increasing self awareness until we break through and have infinite awareness. I mean, I'm talking about this little puppy that I saw today, and he's got a long way to go. You know, he has he has. His freedom and joy is not because he has transcended ego, it's that he hasn't even started down the long path. And so we have increasing self-awareness, we have the free will to make choices, we have the experience of what life can give us, and gradually we refine and refine and refine that understanding until we, um, until we do finally transcend. Now, the reason that we're motivated at all is because we have this longing for happiness, and this desire to escape suffering. That's how Master very simply described the science of religion. The science of religion is, we don't like to suffer, we do want to experience joy. Happiness, joy, bliss, it gradually accelerates. But whatever it is, that's the motivating force. And if you look at everything in the entire creation, that's what we think we're doing. Some of our decisions are really dumb, like really dumb, but it seemed like a good idea at the time, or else we wouldn't do it. Um, something happens, and we, we think that this is where our happiness lies. So that, um, that, I mean, I guess just desire itself 
that outward pushing energy and the desire to experience is planted in us by the divine. There's this sort of simplistic thought that all desires are bad. And, and yes, it's true that ultimately we have to transcend them, but what Swamiji explains is we transcend them because we've, that we've fulfilled them. And we've um, tested every possibility and, and drunk that cup to the bottom and it's given us everything it can give us and then we know that we want something more, that this is not enough. And he, he remarks in here that it's not an accident that ashrams are filled with people from well-to-do homes. People who are hungry and, and don't, I mean, literally hungry and just have no fulfillment yet in their lives, they can't even think about transcending all of it because they haven't even experienced what it has to offer. And so we too have to come into a, an interesting, comfortable relationship with the desires that we have, the desire for a mate, the desire to have children, the desire to have a family, the desire to be attractive, all the different things that we work so hard at to have are, are God-implanted to move us forward. Um, Swamiji put it in a simple way. He said, from having our desires frustrated, but we learn more from having our desires fulfilled. Because as long as those desires are frustrated, there's always the thought in the back of your mind that, oh, if I could have that, then I would be happy. But only when we've had it are we able to say, then, well... And, and in, a, uh, in an ideal understanding, you don't say, oh, that was terrible, that was bad. You just say, well, that was that. But there's something in me that's still not satisfied. And in fact, Swami mentions in here that in the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna, when Arjuna says to Krishna, Lord, what if I give up everything in this quest for God, but I don't really make it to God? If I, don't, I don't really become self-realized. What happens then? Krishna gives two answers. First, he says, my devotee is never lost, meaning I, you, know, I, you stay with me. I keep track of you. You don't fail and fall out. But he said, then you have the good karma to be born into a wealthy home, into a comfortable circumstances where your desires can be filled quickly and easily. You know, I mean, now that's the good karma is to be built into a wealthy home where your desires... So when you, when you really contemplate that, which I've thought about a lot, you have to realize that if it's good karma to have that happen, then there's some other dimension going on here. So... What I think Swamiji has always modeled, he's modeled um, Yogananda's approach to spirituality. Paramahansa Yogananda um, spoke of St. Francis as being his patron saint. And he wrote the beautiful poem, God, 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 he said, inspired by St. Francis. So he had a great devotion to Francis. And he talked about when uh, Master himself went to Assisi and how inspired he was there. But he says... St. Francis worshipped Lady Poverty. He said, I worship Lady Simplicity, is how he put it. Partly because it's a new age, and it's more possible to integrate the material in the spiritual world. So Swamiji is also showing us the example of this new kind of yogi. This is not a yogi that just leaves everything behind, shaves his head, and goes off to a cave. Master grew his hair long. When Sri Yukteswar gave him his first sannyas, garb, 
He gave him silk, which was interesting. In the Autobiography of a Yogi, they say that. Here he is, he's becoming a monk. He's renouncing the world. Sri Yukteswar gives him his first orange robe, representing at that time being a sannyasi, uh, a renunciate, a swami. And he said, it's silk, because you're going to America, and that will be appropriate for you. But you see, it's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Instead of giving him rags, he gives him silk. And so what Swami writes here is that people have to fulfill their desires. They can't just suppress them, and they can't go around them. And the effort required to move into a more and more refined experience of life is the pathway to get you to God. He warns us, you know, this doesn't mean, and this is not free license, to just, you know, think that you'll get over your desires by just fulfilling them all. I remember a man once was trying to persuade Swami Kriyananda to endorse his desire to go to India. That was at a time when very few of us had gone to India, and his, his desire to go was really more restlessness than spiritual truth. He was needed where he was, and disciplining himself to stay there would have been better, because he, he didn't take Swamiji's advice. But he said, I just really want to go. And Swami kept advising him for various reasons that it wasn't the time. It wasn't really a good idea at this time. And he said, but I'm so restless. I have such a desire. I'm so restless because of that desire. I'll never be calm until I fulfill it. And I remember Swami looking at him like this. He said, you have millions and millions of desires. If you try to get peace by fulfilling them, you'll start now and never finish like that. So there is a truth on that also, which is it isn't just that we keep running these. But we do experience... um, Uh, ourselves at more and more refined levels and each one of those levels of refinement becomes something that we can then put behind us. And even the very act, and this is the other part that was so fascinating the way he said this, people who don't have the energy, don't have aspirations and don't put out energy to better their circumstances or their condition are not necessarily more inspiring than people who are working hard to better their circumstances. You see what I mean? Some people, they don't try, but it's not because they've transcended. It's because they don't have the faith, they don't have the energy, they don't have the talent, or they're just so discouraged they don't give a darn anymore. You know, they've just like given up. And when I reached a certain age, um, my friends kept insisting to me that I needed to start wearing makeup. And I'd never worn makeup in my life, and I just couldn't... I had a philosophical commitment against it. But then I started looking around, and I was of an age when I started looking at my contemporaries, and I began to see that... And I mean, this is, this made, this is just very personal, but women can understand this, because I'd never made any effort in my life, you know, to be a girl... Once my friend Paula was running the store we had called Mountain Song in um, Nevada City for a time, and every year she'd put on a fashion show. And she had me be a model once for her. I did it once. And I said, Paula, this is the only time in my entire life I've ever done something that was just about being a girl. (laughs) Never. You know, so I wore all these pretty clothes. It was just like totally a lark for me, like way, way out of the box. But I reached this point where my friends insisted I had to wear makeup, and I couldn't, like get it. But I started looking around and I started realizing that there, if at a certain point you just let down your energy 
you know, then it's not a question of whether you're wearing makeup or not. It's a question at that point you become old. And I, I appreciated the fact that women of a certain age who still made an effort not to look younger than they were, but to just simply continue to make an effort to present themselves well to the world. I talked about this at great length yesterday. That there was an enormous difference in consciousness between the ones who did and the ones who didn't. And the difference was that their own energy had become depressed. Do you understand what I mean? So I went to a friend, and mainly I went to a friend, and I said, tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know? (laughs) And she showed me what to do, and I've done it ever since, you know. It's a joke now that I'm a Naya Swami, and I have no, no jewelry, and I have no clothes except a few of what you see me wear all the time now, but I still put on mascara every morning. I just say, <laughs> go figure. But, the, but uh, it doesn't occupy my mind. My clothes and my jewelry occupied my mind quite a lot. The mascara does, and I do it because I've been persuaded that I need to do it. But that's, that's irrelevant. That's very personal. But the point is here, you also see that many people who don't put out the energy to, you know, to have refinement in their atmosphere, in their, in their, and I don't even mean you have to have things. When I was younger, and I still actually, left to my own devices, I would probably still do my life just this way. I used, when I used to live alone before I was married to David, one of my friends came into my, my little cottage where I lived at that time, and she said, ah, oh, yes, your unmistakable design stamp, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that was, it was just, that was my way of doing it, just absolutely nothing just kept it completely bare, and that was totally like, that was my sense of aesthetic. But it was very deliberate, and there was energy in it. I just saw no reason for it. Now I've needed to be different, and I am different. But the point is, to create beautiful things and to offer them to people is actually helping them in a certain way. I mean, to create junk is not necessarily helping them. To try to take advantage of them is not helping. But just merely to help people put out energy to better their circumstances, even to fulfill whatever desires they have, as long as you're not misleading them, and as long as what you're providing them is not terrible. And therefore, I think a person has to think about the reality of that. When I was 16 years old, I lived in El Paso, Texas. No, I lived in California by then, Southern California. And there was a, de- a department store called Buffums, which was maybe out of business now, I don't know. But it was like a Nordstrom store at that time. And they had a program called the Young Careerist, which was basically high school kids who had jobs. But they made a, a big deal about it, and they gave us little outfits, and they selected two from each high school in town. And I talked my way into it, as I did everything in my life. So, um, because I had no interest in retail sales or anything. And I made a very good impression, and so they wanted, they thought that they would give me a plum. So they put me in the, in the teenage clothes department, where I absolutely bombed. I mean, it was just like I was so terrible in that department because the clothes were junk. And, they, and it was all a hype. It was all like, you know, you have to buy this because this is so cute, and you have to buy that one. And it was all fashion, and it was all, you know, just quick and dirty to make money, I just, I couldn't sell it. I couldn't do anything. And I, I got a very bad reputation in the store. So some other manager who, you know, was willing to take a chance on me, where she was selling sheets and towels, you know, she took me over there. I did great. Because sheets and towels were a real item. And if you're going to buy them, 
if you're going to buy them, you buy nice ones. They're pretty. Look at these blue ones. Isn't that a lovely color? Look at this lovely one with a rose on it. You know, so I think also within this, it's not merely that you merely flood the world with stuff people really don't need, but uh, that you think in terms of helping people refine their own vibration. And one of the ways we do that is by what we desire, how we use it, what we're drawn to, and the energy and sacrifice required sometime to obtain it. And I sort of see in Swamiji's life, I, I mean, I understand this, like I've never quite understood it before, that he was both modeling that and then simply doing that. It's all God's play. Here's a beautiful glass bowl. Look how elegant and lovely it is. It's so uplifting. And it reminds us of the divine. And we bring it home and we, we, we use it here. And it, it brings refinement into our lives and it also helps us sort of fulfill this desire for beauty. And then through fulfilling this desire for beauty, then we begin to understand beauty on a higher and higher level. But if we never put ourselves in contact, even in close proximity, with really refined and beautiful things, or even strong and useful things, well-made, well-designed things, we never really expand beyond wherever we are right now. Now, I think in our country... It's a little over the top. But you know, some people are in business and they're in business selling things. That's what we try to do at East West. And, and I, I really, from reading this, I really appreciate East West more, even more than I ever had. And the incredible devotion of Tushti and Surrender and the rest of the staff there to really give people things that are just things, little statues, bells, you know, wall hangings, all kinds of things, But each one of them carries a certain refined vibration of consciousness. And since people are seeking fulfillment, let's guide them toward these things and let them feel it on a deeper level so that they can then transcend that one and go on. And they put a great deal of care to make sure that everything in there, you know, is is upward moving in in its direction. And then Swamiji really explains to us that this is a real service. This is not contrary even to the spirit of renunciation because we're taking people down the necessary pathway that they have to go in order to get there. You know, one of the most remarkable things about this spiritual path, the path of self-realization, then I have to, you know, condition that by saying, as Master expressed it, and as Swamiji has articulated it for us, is that it's so sweet. You know, it's so full of feeling. It's so full of fun. You know, I know all of us in previous incarnations have done the, you know, the really dry, hard ones. When we, when we went to Calcutta, um, we went to Calcutta starting in about 87 every couple of years or so. We'd go, my husband and I and two of our friends led uh, pilgrimage groups through India based on autobiography of a yogi. So we would go to Calcutta where Master was born and Mother Teresa was still living for, for a, a, a good part of those trips and we would go to her main ashram where, and on several of those occasions she was present there. A very impressive person, about this big. You know, there, there were some very short people on our pilgrimage and they have photographs and she's shorter still. She's a very small person. I, I, I described her as, as an empty vessel, not, so, not just in the sense of God's presence, but she had simply poured herself out in the work that she had done. Um, very inspiring to see her and very inspiring to see how they lived because here they are in 
In India, you have lots of these concrete buildings, you know, concrete patios, brick walls, because of the dampness and all the insects they build with cement, because then nothing can eat it. We had this idea that, you know, building with wood would be a good idea until somebody had left a harmonium for a while just sitting out, and when he picked it up, the innards fell out because the termites had eaten the whole bottom of it. You know, it's just not something you think about here. But so there's this stone courtyard, and each of those sisters, they wear that, the white sari, and they have two. And they wear one, and they wash one. And they have a very set routine. So we, when you wanted to see Mother Teresa, the, the, what you did was you came to, I think it was 5.30 a.m. Mass, maybe it was 6.30 a.m. You came to Mass in the, in the Mother House convent there. You did Mass with the nuns. She would come in and sit also. And then afterwards, she would meet with foreign groups. And so then she'd have a half an hour or so, and you'd just go sort of meet her in her little room, and she would talk to us a little bit. We sang for when we were there for the first time, just as a by the way. I sort of thought, how can we communicate quickly who we are? So uh, we sang a few songs from our oratorio about the life of Christ. And we were in a little stone room. And of course, we sang beautifully because Ananda crowds always do. And in, in the circumstances, we sang even better. And immediately, she knew just like completely, she understood who we were. And subsequent, subsequent years, I, she said to her, one of her nuns once, we should pray for these people. They come every year and they're very devoted. Just like that. It was very, it was very sweet. Um, now, all of this is about those nuns. And so we were there after Mass, and they would start their day. And the first thing the nuns would do is they have a small bucket of cold water, and they would take whatever, the one they weren't wearing, and they would wash it out. They would wash it out in this bucket of cold water, and then, you know, just very, even not even using much water, but wash it out. Then they'd all hang it on the clothesline. Then they'd go and do their day, and then they'd have it for the next morning. You know, part of you thinks, wow, wouldn't that be fantastic? Just to have two, just wash one, wear one, wash one, wear one. Wouldn't that be just great? Yeah, it does sound great to me. We're like that. And, you know, and I looked at their little stone rooms. I was on some place in uh, Greece or somewhere once on some mountain, and there was this little stone cell that belonged to some, that had belonged to some ancient monastery, a little stone bench, a little stone cell, a little cold water tap. My husband, who came up the other way, he came up by being a Maharaja. He could not get out of there fast enough, you know, <laughs> And he practically had to drag me out. It was like, oh, my home. <laughs> you know, so for some of us, just that total simplicity and just renunciation of everything is like, it, it's, it, it doesn't sound hard to us. In fact, it sounds like freedom. I think I had some very, very happy lives in those kind of austere circumstances. But it isn't what's happening now. I mean, we're, we're being challenged to do something else. We're being challenged to be able to bring a refined consciousness to the material world, because this is Dwapara Yuga. All of those ways of being came out of Kali Yuga, which is the age on the planet which has just ended, ended some hundreds of years ago, but is still ended, where the material world and the spiritual world, material world was so gross. I mean, just think about how gross society was. When Jesus was crucified, that was simply how they executed people. And they didn't merely execute them. They executed them publicly, you know, and everybody was there. And you go to the Colosseums and everybody would be torn to bits. And people liked that. It was really, I mean, imagine 
I mean, football seems pretty rugged, but it doesn't really compare to people being eaten by lions. But everybody would go, just like they go to the football games now. Very gross. So if you wanted to be spiritual, you just couldn't mess with any of that. You know, for women, it was endless babies and all the incredible hard work. And for men, everything was so hard physically that you had to just separate yourself from it and and concentrate on something else. So it was the time of perpetual cloisters. You know, people, women and men both would just go into the cloister, especially women. They'd just go in the convent, the gate would come down, that would be the end of it. They'd never come out. But now, it's a whole different flow, because now the material and the spiritual world are not so contradictory, because it's a more refined age. And you see it all around with technology. And just think about how many subtle forms of energy there are now. Whereas how hard people had to work just to live. Um, I mean, I put my clothes in the washing machine and I, I, I hang them on the line, but I carry them outside. I hang them up and I pop them in the washing machine and I think about, you had to boil the water, you had to scrub them on a board, you know, just, you had to make the soap. I mean, you spent all your time just on the most mundane level. But now, because it's a rising age of energy, you can live in the material world. It's not so difficult. So we have to sort of understand how to integrate all these things and let go of this, well, what is really a false division between matter and spirit. That's, that's the thing I learned from my husband. Because I, you know, when I say I came up, I mean I came up karmically, you know, having two habits and washing one and living in the stone cell. And like, that's my natural habitat. And he came through the Maharaja's palace and having all his desires fulfilled and you know, now being transcending it that way. Um, but I learned from him because I saw in him that the world for him was not divided up. For me, it was totally divided up. This was spiritual, this isn't. This is appropriate, this is not. That has to be avoided, this can be embraced. I've, I've told many of you, but not all of you have heard it when after we got married, Swami Kriyananda wanted us to move close to where he was living, where, where I had lived before I was married. He wanted us to move back, but there was no place for us to live. So he said, why don't you build a house? A small house, which is still there. It's the Crystal Hermitage guest house. And I was so horrified at the idea of building a house. I, you know, everybody has their own things. Many people live to have a home. For me, the idea of having a house was an appalling idea because... How would I could I be a spiritual person if I had a nice house? Because it was all divided up in my mind. So my thought was that I'll build an ugly house. <laughs> Basically, David was going to replicate one of the palaces we'd lived in in some previous life, I think. <laughs> I mean, at one point I finally had to say to him, honey, this is a 900 square foot house. I don't know what you think we're building, but this is not it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but he naturally wanted to make it beautiful. And I just... And finally he said to me, you know, dear, if you're not going to help, at least get out of the way. (laughs) And then I could sort of, I mean, Swami had asked us to build this house. So I couldn't pretend that it wasn't spiritually appropriate. But also for me, I had to finally just, you know, deal with the fact that if it's all God, it is all God. And all of this accepting and rejecting is really not going to take me to where I'm trying to go. So the end point being, you know, of all of this, when you don't think about advertising as a very spiritual subject, but Swamiji says here, everything can be done with yogic principles, and so that's what we've been talking about. And the deeper principle that he's really trying to describe is, if we have something to express, 
if we have a service to offer, no matter whether mundane, artistic, intellectual, whatever it might be, if, if we feel it's worth giving, then we should give ourselves wholeheartedly to it and not feel, like I, was, like I was saying a moment ago, that it's all like divided up. Because it's all just a matter of consciousness. This is what I was saying, what I learned from David. David just seemed to understand, and he, he's, I, he was born knowing, I think, it's all energy. And, and we just put out energy. And if you put it out in this form, or this form, or this form, or this form, when you go back to the origin point, it's just all energy. And if that energy manifests as a beautiful dress, as a beautiful house, as a beautiful design for a car, as a marvelously creative financial service, as a really expert tax, uh, a tax accountant, you know, as a day laborer, as a gardener, as a mother, it's really just energy. And whether or not it's spiritual is entirely determined by whether you surround it with light and joy. And if you do, it is. And if you don't, it isn't. I mean, you can be a priest in a pretty important church and not be very impressive. There was a, a, two, two people died, a priest and a taxi driver died and um, met at St. Peter's door, the gate to Saint, to heaven. And of course, the taxi driver was ushered right in, and the priest, St. Peter, said, I just don't see your names on the record here. And he said, well, he's just a cab driver. How did he get in? He said, well, all you did was put people to sleep. He said, the way this man drove, he taught them to pray. <laughs> so just form doesn't make any difference. I, and, and here's the, the last point on this. Lahiri Mahashaya as you face it to the left of Jesus, lived as a householder in Varanasi. He was a real man. He lived as a householder in Varanasi. He died just before the turn of the, before he came into the 1900s. He, his entire life, he was a civil servant and he was a government accountant. That's what he did for his job. I mean, it's really like really hard to imagine a, a job that uh, some of us would enjoy less. An but he was an avatar. But it didn't matter. You have the little story of, uh, uh, was it Lahiri who was being pestered by one of his disciples? Please give me higher initiations into Kriya. In Brinde, the little postman comes in and um, says, Master, I, you know, and Lahiri Mahashaya wants to offer this disciple Brinde as an example. He's teaching the other one. Can I give you higher initiations? Oh, no, Master, please, no. I've come here to tell you that the one Kriya I have has given me so much bliss I can hardly deliver my letters. Please bless me that I can still deliver my mail. You know, he's walking around, he's sorting mail. But what he's doing in himself is he's expressing this infinite divine bubble of light. That image that we started with, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Whatever you're doing, just underneath it, think of yourself as just emanating a bubble of light. And sending that out into the world. Because if you're putting out any energy, that's what you're doing. And then who cares how it manifests? Who cares what it is you're asking? I mean, we all care a lot because we're on this progression. But there's so many ways you just reformulate it and it becomes a whole different reality because nothing is happening here except the divine spirit vibrating. And whether we can feel the, the inner vibration of it or whether we're completely caught in the form is really just a matter of our own awareness. Any questions or comments before we give it up for the night? All right, so we're going to move on to lesson 19, and someday we're actually going to be done. I have to think about what we might do next.
Oh, no class next week.